Um, so I know that people are trickling in, and partly that's our fault because we moved the room, okay? Um, but here's what you need before I get going. Um, you need the, the blue folder that Ingram's passing out, and you need the one piece of paper that's not in your blue folder, okay? And that, blue, that, that piece of paper has Genesis 1 and 2, parts of Genesis 1 and 2 and some yellow font on it. So you need this piece of paper, all right? And you need this blue notebook. So, and I hope you have your Bible. I hope you brought a Bible with you. Um, if you don't have your Bible, you're in big trouble. Um, I'm just, all right. So, hey, good morning. Uh, there are notebooks in the back corner and there's a free sheet of paper. Um, I have a lot to cover today. And so I'm, I'm going to pray and fly in and give you just a little context about why we're doing this. All right. So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your profound and immeasurable generosity towards us in your son, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord Jesus, eternally wealthy and glorious, we praise you and thank you that though you were rich, yet for our sakes you became poor so that we, through your voluntary impoverishment, might be made rich both in this age and especially in the age to come. We ask you, Father, in Jesus' name, that through the presence and power of Holy Spirit who indwells us, that as we look into your word, we would be convinced by what you say that we would, our affections for you would increase, our understanding of your word to us, your people would mature and increase, and our joy in serving you in this church and in our area would increase because we know you and your ways through your word. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, hey, come on in. Sorry we moved rooms on you, and then I opened in prayer and you weren't even in here. That's our fault. Hey, there's a notebook in the back corner and a free piece of paper. Um, so make sure you get your notebook and the loose paper. And um, I am going to talk and teach most of this hour. And I raised, my wife and I raised four children and we have five grandchildren. And I'll just talk over you. I got no problem. Just fair warning. <laughs> It's just not hard at all for me to talk over people. So here we go. So on Wednesday nights, I, I, I did deacon training 10 times last year and 10 times this year. So on Wednesday night, we've been doing deacon training. Well, deacons are the office that King Jesus has set aside to make sure his people meet the needs uh, inside the body of things, people like widows and orphans and people who are struggling with various forms of poverty. That's what the office of deacon essentially is. It's an office of compassion and mercy. Um, And so I did deacon training, and this year for deacon training in the 10-week run, we did it on Wednesday nights, and we just invited the church. And so a lot of people came to that, and and so we've been doing that. And and so Ingram, for various reasons, because people mentioned things to her, asked if I would take that 10-week class and, and compress it now when your Bible study ended. So over the next seven weeks, we'll meet five times. So we're going to meet today. Glad you're here. Welcome. Next week, spring break week, we do not meet next Tuesday. And then we meet a couple more times. Then it's Holy Week. Believe it or not, you're going to wake up. You're going to blink twice and Easter's here. Okay. The week of Easter, okay, the week that we'll have a Maundy Thursday service and a Good Friday service, we don't meet that Tuesday and then we meet a little bit after that and we're done. So we meet five times in seven weeks. Does anyone want me to say those dates out loud? Do y'all care? Do you already know them? They're on the, on the ministry. Basically, we meet five the next seven weeks, skip Holy Week and skip vacation, uh, spring break. Thank you. Okay, so um, what we're going to do, okay, is in these five weeks, we're going to do an overview of what God says about 
himself, his people, and God's heart for the poor. Okay, that's the topic, okay? Today, we're going to look at the Pentateuch, a very small uh, sample of what the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible say about God, his people, and the poor. The next time we meet, which will not be next week, the week after, we're going to look at uh, the prophetic literature, okay? The law, the prophets. Then we're going to come back and we're going to look at the wisdom literature, okay? And my, my goal is for you to say, oh, I can clearly see what God says about himself, his people, and the poor. In the law, the prophets, and the, the writings, the wisdom literature. After those three weeks, we're going to look at the gospels, the life and teaching of Jesus, and our fifth week, we're going to just focus on the Apostle Paul, okay? So that's not the whole Bible, but it's a whole lot of it. And here's, I'm going to go ahead and do a little Presbyterian prophecy, all right? You're going to agree with me at the end of five weeks that the Bible's very consistent, that what God says about himself, his people, and the poor in the law and the prophets and the wisdom literature in the life and teaching of Jesus and the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul is very consistent. And so we're going to have the joy of having like shared convictions about this because it's going to come from the Bible, all right? So here's my request to you. When anyone today in our culture talks about the topic of poverty alleviation, guess what? We come in pre-baked with a lot of feelings and thoughts. So here's my invitation to you. Bracket all that. We have one goal. We just want to know what God says about his people in the church. This, there will be zero talks about what the government should do. We're not here to talk about government. We're not here to talk about politics, right? We, we want to know what does God say? What does God say to his people as his people? And what does God, how does God want his people to relate to people who are wrestling with various forms of poverty? That's the big picture, okay? So um, we all have assumptions when we come to this. And what I want you to do, if at all possible, is just take those assumptions, stick them in the, in, stick them in the background, and let what God says in Scripture be the foreground. That's the main request I have as your pastor, so, so glad you're here. So here's what we're going to do. Let's begin by looking at Genesis 1 and 2. And I've got, that's your loose sheet. It's got yellow on it. So where we start matters. I'm inviting you not to start with uh, political convictions. <laughs> I'm inviting you not to start with anecdotes that you've heard from personal stories. I want to invite you to start with me in Genesis 1 and 2, all right? So um, I believe the Bible is God's word. I believe that Moses wrote the book of Genesis, okay? So we're about to re- we're look at part of Genesis 1 and 2. Moses was the mediator that Yahweh chose to lead, lead his people out of bondage for 400 years, They've lived as slaves. They've been under the thumb of Pharaoh and Egyptian rulers. And Yahweh uses his mighty arm and the leadership of Moses and Aaron. He gets his people out of Egypt. He gets them to Sinai. And there he says, hey, I'm your God. You're my people. This is how you should live. Don't lie to each other. Don't steal from each other. Don't covet things. You know, basically this wonderful description of human flourishing which is what the Ten Commandments are. The Ten Commandments are a description of the neighborhood we all want to live in, where no one steals your stuff, and no one lies to you, and no one tries to take your spouse or your children or your belongings, right? And they don't even desire it, right? It's just a really good description of the neighborhood we all want to live in. Um, And then, um, eventually, uh, God's people get up to the promised land that God's giving them, And that first generation who've been miraculously rescued from Egypt, they look at it and they're like, man, that's a bridge too far. That's some big people over there. (laughs) And uh, the grapes are big. That's nice. But those giants are too big. And you you remember the story. The first generation, they rebel. They don't go in to take the land. Um, And so Yahweh says, great, you're going to walk around the wilderness for the next 40 years. But your children will go in. Okay, think about Genesis like this. Uncle Moses now, he's lived in the wilderness for 40 years, the second third of his life. 
Now he's gonna lead God's people through the wilderness for 40 years while they're waiting for the next generation to go into the promised land. And Uncle Moses tells the stories of Abraham, the creation, the fall, the flood, Tower of Babel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. Uncle uh, Pastor Moses uh, tells the children of Israel all of these stories, the book that we now have is the book of Genesis, because he wants the next generation to believe the promise, right? So just think about that. His audience are, are two generations coming out of the Egyptian bondage. And in Genesis 1, Moses comes in and says, hey, Yahweh, the, your Redeemer created everything. Yahweh. Your God, the God of your fathers, created everything. Everything is his creation. And then, knowing that they grew up as slave children in Egypt, under the thumb of terrible rulers, right? Then he looks to them and he says, this is not what's written, but what we understand from their background. Basically, I know that you think that certain people are in the image of the gods. Because in Egypt, Pharaoh was in the image of the god, and the priests were in the image of the gods, right? And certain people, if you were impressive enough or powerful enough or wealthy enough, then you could say that somehow you had the God's blessing and somehow you reflected God's authority and power. But Moses, to all those people who've been brought out of bondage, looks at them and says, this is what God says. The one true God, Yahweh, who rescued you, the one true God who's creator of everything, every one of you, Male and female are made in the image of God. And that, in the ancient world, that is mind-blowing. No one's saying that in the ancient world. The Egyptians certainly weren't saying that. The other religions weren't saying that. But for Moses to say, this is what God says. Every one of you are made in God's image. That is a, that, that, those were revolutionary wor- words in the ancient world. As a matter of fact... I did this this study one time. Um, So Genesis 1, the first chapter of the Bible, says that men and women are absolutely equal in dignity and identity as God's image bearers, male and female. Zero difference between dignity and value, okay? And so at one point, I was like, I want to know, like, when was that next said? When, When did someone else, like, really hone in on that fact that male and female are equally... uh, have equal identity and dignity before God's eyes as made in God's image. And the earliest text I could find that in writing was 11th century on our side of Christ's death and resurrection, written by a Christian woman mystic, reflecting on the, 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 the identity, the dignity of male and female as God's image bearers. So when Moses wrote this, 2,000 years before Jesus was born, I mean, just think about how countercultural it is, right? It was absolutely countercultural for Moses to say, this is what God says. All of you are made in God's image, male and female equally made in God's image. That was absolutely countercultural. So let's look at it for a minute. This is the, uh, the crescendo of the creation story, Genesis 1, 26 to 31, after God creates everything and he creates three spheres and fills those spheres with creatures that are being fruitful and multiply, then God said, let us make man, humanity, in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on us. Those are the main, big main spheres, the, the water, the land, the sky, and the creatures living in there. Now God has made a creature and said, hey, this creature is ruling over all the rest of the creatures. All right? Verse 27, God's going to be really emphatic about our dignity and our identity. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. I want you to see that God is generous in giving us our identity. Our culture wants you to think that your identity is a project, And you're not working at it hard enough, so get after it. You're a cosmic nobody. 
unless you can afford these things and have this kind of lifestyle and have this kind of accolades from others. God says, nope, you are my image bearer. Your identity is a gift, okay? Um, And then look at how empowering it is. Verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over, and here the, the spheres and the creatures again, the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Three main spheres and the creatures that live in it. God has said to humanity, you reflect my glory, my royal authority, and I set you over the rest of my creation. That's male and female, all humanity. So God gives us that identity, that dignity, and actually he empowers humanity in this in Genesis 1. So this is a royal identity that God gives us. So the Hebrew word for image is selim. And so when, when the pagans made idols, it's the same word, the selim, depending on what the Semitic language was. It was all selim or something that sounds a lot like selim, like T.S. selim. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so basically when, when God is saying to, through Moses, that all humans, male and female, are God's selim. What he's saying is we're, we're living, breathing emblems of God's presence and God's authority. To be human is unbelievably dignifying. Male and female, everyone that's ever existed, made in the image of God. All right, This is super, super important groundwork for understanding how God thinks about poverty. Okay? Now... Look at, I want you to see more of God's generosity. Verse 29, and God said, okay, on top of giving you this unbelievable identity and all this royal authority, behold, which is, we would say, hey, look here, or pay attention. I have given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth... Everything has the breath of life. I, the creator God, have given every green plant for food, and it was so. So this Genesis, the first chapter of the Bible, is showing us that God is a very generous God, right? He, he's created the world, and he's given us our own existence. He's given us unbelievable identity, unbelievable, unbelievable authority, and then he's just really generous. He's just funding his whole creation, his image-bearing creatures, but all of his creatures, God is generously funding the earth and funding all his creatures. That's what's the super clear teaching of Genesis 1. And here's verse 31. How did God evaluate all this creativity and generosity? And God saw everything that he'd made. And look here, it was very good. Tov Ma'od. So he said all the way through Genesis 1, and God saw that it was Tov, and God saw that it was Tov, and God saw that it was Tov. And now you get Tov Ma'od. Very good. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Is the whole thing all together cosmically and all of its relationships very good? Okay. Now, I want you to see that God is generous in giving us our bodies and our breath. Genesis 2, 7 through 9 and following. And and I know I'm skipping a lot of important stuff, but I'm trying to give groundwork for how we think about God, his people, and poverty. So that's the focus. Okay. Then Yahweh formed the man from the dust, of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And Yahweh God planted a garden in the Eden. Notice that God, again, is a worker. Created all things. He's a giver and a gardener. Yahweh planted a garden in Eden. Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, Yahweh God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Our God loves beauty, and he loves for the world to be delicious. You see that? He, he made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So just for a second, I have to pause here because it's so important. 
Raise your hand if you have eyes. You were formatted to see beauty and respond with joy. That's how you were designed. God who made trees that are pleasant to look at also made the eye and gave you a heart to give God praise. All right, now I'm gonna use cantaloupe because it's my favorite fruit. And some of you are wise enough to agree with me, but you put, you put in here your favorite fruit, okay? So think about that perfectly ripe cantaloupe in the summer. It's cold, it's not too, it's not too mushy, it's not that firm, yucky stuff that you chose poorly like I do sometimes, but it's like that perfectly ripe cantaloupe in the heat of the summer, and it's cold and delicious, Okay. Now, when I eat that, I get pretty excited, as you can tell. I'm, I'm like Josh Johnson in a worship service when I eat a cantaloupe, okay? I was formatted. God, who made the cantaloupe and gave me the eye to see that unbelievable color, also gave me taste buds. God could feed you. He could nourish you and me with unsalted crackers, Our God could have made the whole world where we nibble on our fingernails and that's what sustains us. He had all kinds of choices. And what he did was he formatted, he made the world beautiful and glorious and delicious and then formatted you and me to respond to all that with delight. Our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that's often an embodied experience. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the good creation as a gift from the good creator with our bodies, our taste buds, including our minds, including our hearts, rejoicing in God's good gifts, right? And this is the world that God created. It's wonderful. And matter of fact, When we get to the new heavens and new earth, it's all going to be even better than than Genesis 1 and 2. And it's going to last forever. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Okay. Now, go to verse 15. Yahweh God took the man, this is Adam, right? And put him in the garden, which is in that place, Eden. Eden is just a word, Hebrew word that means delight. Okay, so that's important too. There's a special garden that God planted in, in delightful land. And look what he did. He gave him responsibility to abad and shamar, to work it. So abad is the primary Hebrew word for serve. And shamar, um, God shamars you. God will not let your foot slip. He who slumbers, uh, he who does not, sorry, <laughs> sorry. He who never slumbers or sleep, he keeps you. Adam was placed in the garden, in the delightful place to work as a servant and to take good care of it. So now what we see is God has given us this identity of royal priesthood. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 work together. We are, humanity is, has royal dominion over God's good creation. And the way we express that authority is to abode and shamar, to work it and to keep it, to work it, to serve and to take good care of it. Now, in the whole story of the Bible, is there ever a really good ruler who does exactly what God wants him to do as a ruler, and he expresses his headship, his rulership, his royal authority as a servant. Yeah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our current church's memory verse, the second part of it is where Jesus says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, so... When Jesus is the, the long-awaited royal king who's expressing his royal rule as a servant, he's being the perfect Adam, the perfect second Adam. And there are a few people in this room that are married, and the Bible does affirm that your husband is the head of you in your marriage. And if he lives that out in a way that makes you feel cherished, you know that's a really, really good thing. 
And this is what it means to be human. Now, this now, and here in Genesis 1 and 2, applies to all humans. Because male and female were set over the world, and the way we live at our royal calling is to do it as servants. And that's everybody. Okay, so let's keep moving. Um, Yahweh commanded the man, oh, now we have a commandment, saying, you may surely eat of the of every tree of the garden. Every, every, every tree. Unbelievable generosity. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. So um, you and I, all, <laughs> we know where that leads, um, and we're not going to focus a lot on the fall today, but we're going to assume it. Um, but look at this. Work is God's pre-fall gift, and to, and, to, and, to, and to find good work and to do good work is to live out your royal priesthood. All humans, Right? Work is, so if, if, if someone taught you at some point or you learned subtly that work was a result of the fall, we just saw that was bad teaching. Work is not a result of the fall, right? Work is impacted by the fall, but God is a worker and we were all created to work, okay? That doesn't mean have a career you get paid for, right? We, need, we have to decouple Work with 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 paid career. That, that that in some cases it will mean that. In some cases it'll mean all all other kinds of work. Life is work, and that's actually God's gift and God's blessing. Okay. So, all right. Now, why do we do all that? I want you to see with me. Oops. Finally, verse eighteen. That's pretty important. Then Yahweh God said, "It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him." And so. You've got to put Genesis 1 and 2 together, right? Uh, male and female created an image of God, shared royal dignity ruling over all things, and God brought Eve into the picture uh, to be a helper with and for Adam. And so there are unique roles there, but this lesson isn't about that. We're talking about poverty. So here's what I, want you, I do want you to see is that we are all created for four key relationships. So here are your blanks. You and I were created for a relationship with God, I'm going to prove to you in 10 seconds that we all have a relationship with ourself. We're created for a relationship with others. And clearly from Genesis 1 and 2, you and I are put in a relationship with the whole creation. Right? Raise your hand if you live uh, parts of your life apart from what God's made. <laughs> right? So we are constantly in relationship with God, with ourselves, with others and the whole creation, okay? So let me, let me give you one definition of poverty, broken relationships, all right? So these now, because the fall happened, because Adam and Eve rebelled against God, what, we're, what, we, what I want you to see is four broken relationships, And then your last little line down there, the scriptures or God and his word offer this fourfold relational brokenness as the key to understanding poverty. Okay, this relational brokenness is the key to understanding poverty. Okay, so let me illustrate just in case it's confusing that we have a relationship with ourselves. If you read the Psalms, right, why are you so disturbed within me? Self-talk, right? Uh, Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Forget not all his benefits. Self-talk, okay? Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of us do self-talk? And, and, and typically, we're really unkind to ourselves in self-talk. And our relationship with ourselves is broken because our relationship with God is broken. God's the giver of our identity and our dignity and our purpose. And when that relationship with God is broken, it breaks our relationship with ourselves, right? And so when you're renewed, when you believe in Jesus, uh, you're forgiven, you're, you're reconciled to God, and your relationship with yourself begins to get healed. But in case no one's ever done this math for you, one reason that you have so much conflict with others is you haven't been, you're not super aware of how broken your relationship with yourself is. A whole lot of t 
tension and brokenness in relationships is two people are in an intimate relationship and they don't know that they're, that they're unhealthy in, in and of themselves. I don't know that I'm filled with pride and that you're filled with shame and we can't ever really communicate well because my pride makes me mishear you and your shame makes you mishear me. Does that make sense? So we all have a broken relationship with God, ourselves, others, and the whole creation. Now let me illustrate to you how complex poverty is. And we're going to focus a lot on people who are wrestling with material poverty. But here's something I learned um, as a teenager. Um, my dad put me in context where I was helping in, in Chattanooga in the poorest neighborhood in the city. Um, and through that, I met a guy who did widow's ministry to the poorest widows in the city. And through that, I met a woman named Maddie Young. And Maddie Young was a very poor inner city widow, right? And, I, and I'm a teenager from Lookout Mountain, which is like being a teenager from Mountain Brook, right? And I'm going down and I'm mowing her yard and I'm, you know, I'm there to bless and, and minister to this very poor inner city African-American widow named Maddie Young. And then the first time I went into her home, there was a squirrel that she had caught uh, that was bobbing in her you know, on her stove. That was going to be her dinner that night. And then I said, you know, I knew that I was supposed to pray with this widow that I was ministering to. So I sat down with Maddie Young in her living room. I said, well, can we pray together? And she said, oh, yes, we can pray. And then Maddie Young taught me how to pray. So I, I did not have the material poverty that she did, right? But I realized that a lot of people who had a lot of material stuff sometimes had spiritual poverty, all right? And so um, that's a little background. Okay, now what I want to do is uh, work using that paradigm. So I, I just, if you've never thought about those four key relationships, I just invite you to go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and then look at Genesis 3 and you can see how all four relationships are impacted by human rebellion. So obviously our rebellion broke relationship with God, um, very quickly, what are Adam and Eve doing? They're hiding. That's that relationship with self, shame, we're hiding. And then what happens when God shows up? Blaming, right? And then what happens? Uh, the ground they're supposed to work is cursed. God, self, others, the rest of creation, all those relationships are broken, right? And this is what leads to all forms of poverty, spiritual poverty, emotional poverty, relational poverty, and material poverty, Right? Those are all forms of poverty. We're going to focus on the most quantifiable type, which is material poverty. And we should care about people who are suffering from material poverty, but we don't want to isolate it as though there aren't other forms of poverty and that these relationships aren't all related to each other. So now what I want you to do is look in your, in your folder and accept this apology um, the apology is that um, you can't see everything, so you might want to take your sheets out. <laughs> we're going to work on margins next week. Um, we're going to work on margins. Um, so you can take your sheets out or you can leave them in. But here's something I want you to do. So the, the three passages we're going to look at today, that was all, that was all prologue. Okay, that was all intro. The passages, and there's four of them, I'm not good at math. Okay. Um, I want you to notice they come from Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. All right. Why so? After God rescues his covenant people from bondage, from slavery, from hopeless poverty, after in his providence, they have that experience. He rescues them with his mighty arm because of his covenant faithfulness and his love for them. And then he gives them very explicit teaching about how to think about people that are poor. They have the empathy for people who are poor because they've lived it themselves. In the wisdom of God, that's when he does it. So that should be instructive on its own terms, right? And so I want you to know, everything we're looking at today it's not just random. This is God's specific teaching about how to relate to poor people. And he keeps referring to their experience of living as people 
who are poverty. So there's people in this room who've never experienced material poverty, but you've experienced spiritual poverty. And you've experienced relational poverty. You've experienced emotional poverty. And sometimes you have to get in touch with that reality and remember it to be able to relate to people who are having any other type of poverty. Because actually, as we're going to see in the first passage, empathy matters to God. And we have a God who empathizes with those who suffer. Okay, so let's dive in. Uh, Exodus 23, 9 through 12. So this is right after the Exodus. They're at Sinai when this happens, okay? And here's what Yahweh says to them. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner. Why? For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So that's the big, big picture. Do not oppress people who were vulnerable because you know what it's like to be vulnerable. And I rescued you from that. Now, the word for sojourner here, who remembers what Moses' son's name was? Gershom. The word sojourner here is the Hebrew word ger. You shall not oppress a stranger. You shall not oppress someone who's vulnerably passing through where you are stable and feel secure for whatever reasons, for their political reasons, for their economic reasons, for uh, religious oppression, for whatever reason, they're fleeing their lives and passing through where you are. You shall not oppress them. They're Gers. Now, Moses named his firstborn son Gershom, alien, alien Shum. I don't fit here, Shum, because he was living that experience out in the wilderness, okay? So you should not oppress someone who's vulnerable because they, they've, they've had to flee where they're coming from for whatever reason, you don't oppress them. You know the heart of those people, for you were those people in the land of Egypt. So look at the two laws that follow this immediately in Exodus 23. This is the, the law code, the covenant code in Genesis at Sinai. Verse 10, for six years, you shall do the normal stuff. Sow your land, that's your field, and gather in its yield. But the seventh year, a whole year, you shall let it rest in lie fallow. Why? That the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. Why? Because God's a good creator and he cares about it, all of his creatures. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and your olive orchard. So look at the three areas God just said. Every seventh year, you leave it completely alone and everyone gets to come in and glean, especially the poor. Your field where all your crops grow, your vineyard, where your grapes grow so you can make wine, and your olive orchard. That's a lot. Okay, now, every seventh year, it, you leave it completely alone, right? And anyone can come and gather and glean. Can you imagine if like, the state of Alabama had a law that uh, every seventh year, uh, Publix and Piggly Wiggly cannot not lock their doors and charge people for a year. Now, who would rejoice over that the most? That'd be inconvenient for us. But for a lot of people that live in Birmingham, that would be great news. But this is just what God says to his people about their land that he's giving them. He's giving them. He's giving them. Okay, that's the annual thing every seventh year. Now, look at the more regular thing, verse 12. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest that your ox and your donkey may have rest and the son of your servant woman and the alien. And this drives me crazy. Sorry, ESV. But the word sojourn up above and the word alien here, it's the same word, girl. And you can't tell that. And I don't know why. That really bothers me. But it's just the same word. Okay? So every Sabbath, every sabbatical year, and in every situation, you don't take advantage of people who are vulnerable. You do make space for people who have need. This is just the regular rhythm and pattern of God's people. All right? Now, I'm going to move fast because we got to cover a lot today. Just 
let me look with you for a minute at Leviticus 19. This is when Jesus says, hey, the bottom line is love God and love your neighbor, right? The, the major Old Testament love your neighbor passage is Leviticus 19, okay? So this is a related law, this is, but it's not identical. So this is another law about caring for the poor. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the gur, the vulnerable traveler who's fleeing for his life. And what does he attach it to? I am Yahweh, your God. I'm the God that rescued you in love and covenant faithfulness. This is how to be my people. So these are the gleaning laws, and you, there's a lot of, you can read the gleaning laws in different places, but here's the difference. So the passage in Exodus is one year out of seven, you leave everything alone and everyone goes out and glean. The richest and the poor, everyone just goes and just has a big feast all the time. The other sabbatical law was on the seventh day, no work, you get to eat, and everyone around you gets to, gets to uh, benefit the gleaning laws is when you do your normal harvest, if, um, if this is your field, right, you might harvest an area a little bit bigger than the blue area, but all the boundaries you leave and you don't harvest the boundaries. You leave some of your profits on the margins so people can come and work, because everyone's made in God's image and it's dignifying to work. So there aren't really, it's very hard to find Old Testament legislation about handouts, but there's a lot of Old Testament legislation about blessing the poor through giving them work. And so what you have here is uh, the gleaning laws are there's, you don't work your field all the way to the edges. You leave the, the borders for, your, for the poor to come and work and get food for their family so they get the dignity of, I'm, I worked all day and I'm bringing food home to my family, right? But also the gleaning laws say this, and you don't glean through your field a second time. You work your field not to the boundaries and you don't go through it and then go through it again and go through it again. So after you've gone through your field, not the whole field, once you've gone through your field one time, you didn't pick everything, you missed some stuff, so the poor around you who are poor for whatever reason, they can come and work your field. They can work the boundaries that you didn't touch and they can work the main part of the field that you only went through once. And that's essentially how the gleaning laws work in the Old Testament, okay? So let's look at another one, Leviticus 23, 22. And I'm reading this one for a, a really important person I'll explain in just a minute. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap the field right up to its edge. You shall gather the gleanings after your harvest. No, sorry, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the gur. I am Yahweh, your God. Here's, I wish I gave you this sheet of paper, but I didn't. But I want you to see what Leviticus 23 looks like. So I know it's gonna be hard for you to see, but I'll tell you what's, what words are on here, okay? These verses we just read are the absolute center of Leviticus 23. And guess what's on Leviticus 23? Yahweh talking about all the festivals of Israel. A gleaning law isn't a festival. But what Yahweh does is he names three festivals and then three festivals, and he attaches the Sabbath and the gleaning laws in the middle. And it's one way for Yahweh to say, what I'm saying right now about how you care for the poor is at the heart of what it means to be my people. So let me tell you what comes before it. The Passover, the Feast of First Fruits, and the Feast of Weeks. And then let's talk about Sabbath and gleaning. And then Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths. So in that chapter of Leviticus 23, where Yahweh lays out all of the major feasts of Israel, three, something in the middle, three, that thing in the middle is keeping the Sabbath and ministry to the poor. That's one way for Yahweh to say, this, this is core to my heart for you, right? All of these laws are about how you care for God's people and 
the gurs, the outsiders. Now, I won't go into that. But anyway, that's amazing, especially in an ancient world context. Okay, we're going to look at one more passage, and then I'm going to tell you how different the following weeks are going to be. Let's look at Deuteronomy 15, 1 through 15. So here's why we're going to look at this passage, okay? At Sinai, Yahweh is telling them, this is how I want you to lay out your life. Build a tabernacle. You live in tents. Build a tent for me in the middle of you. You have access to me. It's limited access because I'm very holy and you are very not. But, I, but pitch a tent for me in the middle of your community. And then here are my laws for you. And here's how I want you to live. Okay? And this is, this is, this is how I want you to live as my covenant people. I'm your God. You're my people. When you get to Deuteronomy, right, they're in a new location. They're on the border of the land. They're under a different mountain. And M- M- Uncle Moses, once again, Pastor Moses is saying, hey, you're going to go in and get the land that Yahweh promised your forefathers, and you're going to get it. And when you get there and Yahweh blesses your socks off, you, don't, you, don't even, you can't even believe how great this land is. And you can't believe how much God is going to bless you. He's going to make your fields do great. He's going to bless your children. He's gonna, it's just going to be a beautiful place where you're going to experience God's promised blessing. And when you do, don't drift from Yahweh in your heart and love his gifts more than you love him. And do not neglect the poor. So here's Deuteronomy 15. And when you see that he talks about what you do with your hands and what you do with your heart. And this will be the most challenging thing we say because here's something that I really want to say as your pastor. There's work we can't do. But God, his arms are not short. And if one of the biggest things we need is like heart change, that's God's business. And he loves a broken and contrite heart. And he loves it when we ask for his grace and his mercy. Okay, so here's Deuteronomy 15. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because Yahweh's release has been proclaimed. So this is a ta- What do you think it is? Yahweh's release. What do you think this legislation is attached to? The day of atonement. Deuteronomy 15 is deeply tied to the day of atonement, which is deeply tied to the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? It's just hints about how God is going to wipe away our sin and debts before he did it. Okay, so Deuteronomy 15 is deeply tied to the day of atonement, all right? Now, that's what Yahweh's release has been proclaimed. Blow the horn, (laughs) Forgiveness is an atonement, is announced to the people of God through the mediator that God has chosen to offer the sacrifice that he's commanded. That's just gospel, 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 right? Okay, now, verse three, of a foreigner, you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. So basically, um, the halts, because uh, they're not nearly as responsible as the Hogwoods, could have gotten a situation where the Holtz had to borrow from the Hogwoods. And as we'll see here, they're supposed to lend, with, lend to us uh, without charging interest. Um, but in the seventh year, if we hadn't paid them back, um, they're going to release that. They're going to release the debt that we owe. Now, this is related to the law of Jubilee, which is Leviticus 25. And that's if we had like lost, we'd gotten so impoverished that we basically said, we'll come be your servants and our land now belongs to you. After seven cycles of seven years in the new Jubilee, not only do they cancel our debts, but we actually get our inheritance land back. This is the sabbatical year, not the year Jubilee. So this is basically Mark and Catherine are like, all right, Robbie, try to do better this time. You don't owe us any more money. Um, and so that's what's being described here. Okay, that's, that's, the, that's what's being, that's what Mark and Catherine are releasing Robbie and Chrissy's indebtedness to them economically because it's the, it's the day of atonement. Yahweh's release has been proclaimed. 
The high priest has gone into the holy holies on the only day he's allowed to and offered the sacrifice that only he's allowed to offer. And Yahweh has said, I forgive all my people. And so all the people who, who then go out and celebrate and hear the horn being blown, those people go, oh, you know what? Of course, we're, you don't have to pay us back. I mean, you know, all of our debts are, are paid. We've all experienced the release. God's forgiveness of our sin. We're fully forgiven. How can we hold your debts against you? That's what's being described here. Okay, now, but there'll, verse four, but there will be no poor among you. For Yahweh will bless you in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of Yahweh your God, being careful to do all his commandment that I command you today, which they never did. For Yahweh your God will bless you, which he consistently did, as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. Which would have happened. <laughs> um, and it happened in micro moments when they were faithful and had a good leader. But it uh, rarely happened because God's people rarely obeyed him. But it's going to happen because we're going to reign with him. Okay, now here's the really important part for our understanding how we, God's covenant people, ought to relate to God, ourselves, and others when people are wrestling with poverty. By the way, I'm not saying we take laws from Leviticus and Deuteronomy and just lift them up and just apply them to Birmingham in the 21st century. This is revealing God's heart. All right? This, is, this, is, this, is, um, this ought to create in us an awareness of how God thinks about things and motivation so that we would be engaged with people who are suffering and struggling with a heart that's good, that honors God and honors their dignity as God's image bearers. That's the point here, right? It's not just lift up laws and plop them down, right? Um, but these laws are instructive for us uh, as the people of God. Okay, verse seven. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor. Wait a minute. <laughs> he just said, there shall be no poor among you so long as you obey me. And then he said, now if one of the brothers among you becomes poor, right? In other words, he knows they're not going to obey, okay? And people are going to become poor, okay? But that's not the only reason people can become poor. People will become poor because of uh, famine, drought, pestilence, individual rebellion, and oppression of the powerful. Those are all reasons the Bible addresses, and we'll see some of those a lot in the prophetic literature addresses that. So before I read this, just one piece of background. Brian Fickert, who was here recently um, with an event with uh, Urban Hope. Uh, Brian Fickert's a very good friend of mine. He's written some great stuff about poverty alleviation that's focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ in the church. He would never tell you this. He has a PhD in economics from Yale, and he will tell you, here's why people... He'll talk about the four key relationships, and then he'll say, let me boil it down for you. Here's why people are poor. Sin, oppression, and you ready for the third one for the guy with a PhD from Yale? Demonic activity. That wasn't in any of the economic manuals that he studied, but it's in the Bible, and he's been to Africa. Okay. All right. If among you one of your brothers should become poor... If any of your towns within your land that Yahweh your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, huh, the seventh year, the year of release is near. In other words, I'm not going to loan to you in the end of the fifth year. I'm not going to help you in the sixth year. I'm, I might help you in year one or year two. I might even consider year three. You see what's going on? But if you're not going to pay me back in full, if I loaned you at the end of year five and year seven's coming, you can't pay me back. Be careful how you think in your heart. 
Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say the seventh year, the year of release is near and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cried to Yahweh against you and you be guilty of sin. Yahweh is saying you need unique calculators. The calculators that assume that we're all cosmic orphans and we're all in competition with each other, those calculators won't work in my kingdom because blessing is mine to give. And I'm a generous and a gracious God. Verse 10, you shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because for this Yahweh your God will bless you in all your work and in all you undertake. You are not the primary keeper of your well-being. Yahweh is. So be careful how you calculate your acts of generosity, especially to the poor, because Yahweh is the one who blesses you. Now look at this. Remember up there, there will be no poor among you in verse 4? Verse 11, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. (laughs) What a what? Right? There will never cease to be poor in the land. Jesus quotes this, right? Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. And in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall, let nothing go, let, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock out of your fleshing floor and out of your wine press, you'll give him cattle, sheep, goats. You'll give him grain, seeds to, to rework that field that he's not been able to lead well, and liberally out of your wine press. Because God wants all his people to flourish. As Yahweh your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and Yahweh your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. Do you see what Yahweh keeps going back to? You were in a terrible situation. I graciously redeemed you in love. I worked hard to see you brought out of that situation. So now when you meet people in these situations, I just want you to imitate me. And so the bottom line of during 15, if you're taking notes, is Yahweh tells us what to do with our hands. Be generous. With our hearts, be kind and generous. And Yahweh knows how to speak to us, doesn't he? Your eye right? Your perspective. Stay out of judgment. Be generous. Be kind. Now, we're wrapping up. This, this is not, uh, I did not give you 10 practical rules, right? Don't worry about that yet. What my goal with you of these next five times out of seven weeks is for us just to agree together what God says and what, what God loves and cares about for his people and for the poor. That's it. And in future days, uh, various people among us, including our deacons, will give us lots of concrete guidance on how we as a church and as individuals can participate in what God's up to. All right? Let me close this in prayer, and then y'all get to eat lunch, and I have to go do something else. All right. Father in heaven, thank you for showing us how generous you are to us. Above all, we're thankful for the ultimate day of atonement. When you willed for your son in our human flesh to offer himself as the ultimate sacrificial lamb, to pay our debts in full. 
Thank you for canceling the record that stood against us by nailing it to the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you for paying for our debts and giving us your righteousness as our record. Let this soften our hearts. Let us see the world the way you see it. Let us look into our own church and see where our sisters around us need love and care and attention and support. Help us to be relationally generous inside the body. And in these coming weeks, as we consider people who live near us with a lot of poverty, help us see that many of the widows crying out to you in the poorest neighborhoods in our city, they truly are our sisters in Christ with whom we can grow. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.